Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 300 speaker files, links for you to subscribe to the podcast, and a place where you can donate to keep the special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Helena. Hi, everyone. My name is Helena, and I'm a compulsive overeater and restrictor and sugar addict. I want to say hello again. Hello, OA family. Hello, OA family here in L.A. Hello, OA family in New York. If you're listening, um, I just moved here from from New York in March and um, celebrated two years in August. And um, just want to say hello to Brooklyn, Stonehouse. What's up? Miss you. Love you. You guys got me started. Keeping it going. Um, I also want to say hello to to the newcomers here tonight who had the courage to come to this meeting or come back to this meeting if you've been gone. I want to say hello to the person that might be listening to the podcast who might be in relapse, um, or maybe they are just sitting in their home alone, terrified, and they don't want to leave their house, but they, uh, they feel desperate and out of answers, and they um, are looking for some hope. So if you're listening, I, I am sending you love, and I want to say one thing to everyone in this room and to anybody that's listening and that is that I love you I love you and I love every person that is listening to this podcast and I can only say that because of this program and in the two years I've had of abstinence I've learned to love myself and I've also learned that I cannot give what I haven't been given I can only give what I have been given, and I can only keep what I have been given if I give it away. So um, I have been given so much love by this program and by the people in these rooms and by uh, the people that wrote our literature, um, the people that came before us. The love, the legacy of love just goes on. And I hope that somebody listening tonight feels a little bit of love from me and from from the other people that are listening because this program is uniting us. Okay, um, I, uh, I have two years, as I said, um, two years of abstinence. I found the willingness to recover one day at a time for two years. And to me, the willingness is um, it's the willingness to admit that I'm powerless. One day at a time, I have found the courage to admit that I'm completely powerless, not just over food, definitely over food, I'm definitely powerless over food, but I am powerless over everything. I don't have any answers. Uh, Prior to coming into this program, I thought I had them all. I had done my research, you guys. I had read everything, every diet book that hadn't been written, every cookbook, every magazine article. And I maintain to this day that I am one bite away from a binge and I'm one article away from a cleanse. (laughs) And I mean that. It sounds funny, but I mean it completely earnestly. Um, I have not... Thank God, to this day, I have not ever tried a cleanse. Um, But I'm also not bulimic. I've never thrown up. And I've never starved myself to an unhealthy weight. And let me add this word, yet. I have not done those things yet. And the only reason I haven't, I fully, wholeheartedly believe, is because I keep coming back to these meetings. So to the newcomer, when you hear someone say, keep coming back, we mean it. We mean it. And we don't mean it because we want your money. 
<laughs> we don't mean it because, you know, you make us feel better about ourselves. We can congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and say, we got one more. We've reeled in one more of you. No. We mean it because we've been there. We've sat where you are sitting. We know what it feels like to feel terrified and powerless and to not have the answers. Um, I'm going to go into what it was like for me growing up, but before I do, I want to share what it was like for me my first meeting. Um, I came in on a Sunday. I had sat that Saturday night before, um, binged, and it was a usual binge for me. Um, it was a binge that only a person with this disease can do, and that means someone else was in the room, but I found a way to do it without them knowing it. Um, and uh, my husband and I lived in a one-room apartment in Brooklyn, and you better believe I found a way to binge on food that he didn't even know was in that house. Um, and I did this on the regular, you guys. There was no, um, you know, I, I, I did this regularly. I had been having heart palpitations, and I didn't know why. Uh, I would be sitting watching TV, sitting sideways on my, my love seat, facing the TV so my legs were sprawled in front of me at an almost recline but I couldn't recline completely because if you're completely reclined it's harder to eat um, and had just gotten some kind of delivery um, you know in New York we call it cheeseburger deluxe and that means that it comes with everything it comes with fries it comes with everything on top and um, I don't know what happened I blinked and it was gone I blinked and I had been experiencing heart palpitations for a few weeks. You know, I, I probably had been experiencing them for a few years, but I'd only become aware of them for a few weeks. And I had a friend who was a nurse, and I called her, and I said, I'm having heart palpitations. I don't know what's going on. And she said, you're probably dehydrated. Drink lots of water. Well, she's probably right. But what I didn't tell her was what I didn't realize. I had binged, and I had been binging. I was completely oblivious to the fact that I was binging. That is the insidiousness of this disease. Alcoholics have binge blackouts. I had binge, they had alcoholic binge blackouts. I had food binge blackouts where I was doing it and didn't even know I was doing it. I had no consciousness of how much food I was eating. To this day, I cannot tell you what a binge looked like for me. I, I remember certain times, certain, you know, situations, but um, I can't tell you what my worst was because my mind shut off. That, that's how this disease works. It shuts us down so that we can just fill that God-sized hole with whatever's in front of us. This recovery is threefold. It's spiritual, physical, and emotional. Did I get that right? Emotional? Did I get that right? Okay. I'm going to assume I did. Thank you. Um, and I have experienced all three of those things. Just to get my numbers out of the way, I do not come from big numbers, and that is only because I came in when I did. Um, I have in two years lost about two sizes. I don't really get on the scale. When I do, it doesn't say what I want it to say, and that is none of my business. Um, I do not have a doctor telling me I need to lose weight yet, but if I do have a doctor tell me that, I am willing to do what that doctor suggests. Having said that, I do recommend finding a doctor that is OA friendly because I have gotten the following advice from doctors before when um, whatever diet I was on was um, failing me. One was the cookie diet. Uh, I had a doctor say to me, oh, you know what, um, I just lost a ton of weight. I didn't even exercise. Um, here's the number of this doctor. These are the cookies I ate. You just eat them three times a day, and it's great. I've lost 60 pounds, however much it was. 
And I thought that sounded fantastic, and the only reason I didn't try it is because it's too expensive. Um, and another doctor told me to eat more. Um, add more foods to your diet. <laughs> I'm laughing because I don't think I could have added more food. Whatever types of food she wanted me to add, I don't think I could. So, um, so I, but I am willing today to, um, to alter my, uh, my food plan if I'm instructed to do so by somebody that might know more than me. Um, when I came in, no one knew more than me. I was an expert. And um, today, I don't know anything. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've lost two dress sizes. Um, I have done that using this program. Um, I work the tools. I work the steps. I have actually have two sponsors. Oh, that is such a blessing. Um, it's kind of special circumstances. I'm not saying anyone needs to have two sponsors. Um, and I use, you know, I have my food plan. Um, my food plan is no sugar, no gluten, no cheese and three meals a day, two optional snacks. Um, just to give a little detail, I, I, cheese is not an alcoholic food for me. I've had it once in the last two years. That food plan was given to me by, um, by an acupuncturist, and um, cheese is just not healthy for me. I had it once because it was an emergency situation, and I called my sponsor. I bookended the meal with calls to my sponsor, and I had serenity about it. So um, that's, that's just getting that stuff out of the way. Um, let me go into um, what it was like. Uh, I, I was conceived in a Volkswagen van, and don't worry, I'm skipping ahead. I'm not going to start at conception. <laughs> I don't think there's enough time in a weekend for that. Um, but I, I tell you that only because it gives you an idea of the environment I was grown up. I grew up in. Uh, my parents were hippies who, I have to say, because my mom would kill me, they did not do drugs. Um, and my dad worked. Um, so I conceived on a camping trip in Oregon in a Volkswagen van. And um, I, I grew up in a home that had a lot of love and um, sometimes had some sanity. And um, I was cared for. My mom made clothes for me. Um, I have an older sister and two younger brothers. Um, my mother didn't work, so she was able to spend time with us. My father did work, but was very, you know, very loving when he was when he was home. Um, so guess what? They didn't give me this disease. Um, I believe I was born with this disease. I believe I was born an addict, and that circumstances would dictate whether or not it picked up. And what I picked up, I just as easily could have become an alcoholic, a heroin addict, any kind of addict. Um, I picked up food, I think, maybe because it was available, um, but I, I definitely picked up. Um, from a young age, I had obsessive thoughts about food. I had, um, you know, I remember, you know, I was probably five going strawberry picking and just could not wait till my mom turned around so I could shove the strawberries in my mouth and not into the basket. And then there were jokes like, oh, we should weigh her before before you leave and charge you for whatever she ate. And, um, you know, I, I was pretty little when that's going on. And, and that's, you know, today, I, I can tell you today I am not my story. I'm telling you the story of what happened, but I am not my story. I have a distance from it now that I'm able to say that poor little girl, you know, for whatever reason wasn't getting what she needed from this life and, and had to fill that need with something else. And, and that time it was strawberries. Um, 
I learned from a young age how to open the cookie jar without making a noise, how to open the freezer to get out, you know, ice cream and, and eat it before anyone came in the room. I did the hand swipe, and if you're listening, I'm wiping my mouth across, my hand across my mouth, because that's what you do when people walk in the room and might catch you mid-bite. Um, and then you turn around, you stop chewing, so no one sees you're chewing. I mean, come on, this is insanity. This is insanity, and, and, and that's the insanity of this disease. I perfected that at a very young age, and I grew up with it, and, and I, I got very good at it. Um, I, uh, I, so I was raised in a spiritual home. We were given the opportunity to define what God meant to us, and that is an amazing gift to be given to a child. And um, so I had a pretty pretty clear idea from a young age that there was something bigger than me in this world, and that, that, that was a gift. Um, and I got to decide what that meant and what that looked like and um, how to practice whatever faith it was that I wanted to embrace to... Um, to worship or to celebrate that higher power, um, but uh, even even with that, I I, I was suffering inside. Uh, my house, my home was not completely peaceful. Um, my my mother grew up in a really really she had a very difficult childhood and um, was only able to give what she could give and it. I, I know she did what she could do with what she had, and I have no blame for her or ill will towards her. But, um, she, you know, she and my sister did not get along well, so I grew up um, kind of bobbing and weaving and dodging in the shadows, just trying not to be noticed and hiding and just not wanting to be sucked into the drama. So I was off in the corner kind of creating my own, I guess, and eating and starting to get chubby at about sixth grade and... Um, I uh, started babysitting, and this is where this is where the pinging really began. Because in my house, most of the food was supervised, but when I was babysitting, it was it was no holds barred. I um, I couldn't wait for the parents to leave and to put the kids in front of the TV and to just eat everything, everything. Hide food wrappers under the cushions, wrap them in paper towels to put them in the garbage so they wouldn't be seen. Um, I'm sure there were times I blended on the kids because the last fruit roll-up was gone. You know, whatever, whatever I needed to do to um, to eat what I what I wanted and um, to to hide the evidence and um, and it was it was a horrible feeling and um, I I just never felt good in my skin. I never felt good in my body. I was that person at school that was constantly putting herself down. Just constantly saying, "Oh well, um, I'm too fat to do that, and I'm, I'm no one's going to love me." And I just wanted to be loved so, so badly. And I was loved, but I wasn't able to feel it. Um, so uh, I started dieting in junior high with my mom. It was the first thing we bonded over. We did a commercial weight loss program where you weigh in publicly, you get shamed publicly, and, um, you know, if you have a small success, it feels conditional, you know, and, and there are there are commercial weight loss programs that work for people, so I have nothing against them, um, And but what I will say is the first thing my mother and I bonded over, and to this day, I'm really working on finding things to bond over with my mother that aren't food-related or diet-related, and I grew up with a mother who, to this day, says, I hear her every time I see her, I hear her say, when I lose weight, I will dot, dot, dot. And I have so much compassion for her because that's exactly how I have lived my life um, until I came into these rooms. So um, I, you know, in the college years, I had some reprieve. 
um, I was happy. I was living, living. I was, I was happy. I had some reprieve until I had a teacher say something particularly damaging to my self-esteem. Um, this is somebody who kind of took me under her wing, um, and I was studying theater at the time, and she told me um, that. Uh, she she was giving little notes to everybody to take home something to work on over the summer. And I was looking forward to it because I knew that some people had gotten notes saying, um, oh, I would like you to work on Shakespeare over the summer. And, you know, I just really, really wanted to be good. And I wanted to be good at something. And I probably also just really wanted to be noticed and validated. But um, she told me in this note, I'd like to see you lose some weight and get out of the frumpy rolls. And I, you know, I... At the time, really, was not was not that big. I was I would say I was normal sized, and whatever normal is, forgive me for saying that, but uh, maybe normal for me. I was a healthy weight. I will just say that. Um, but you know, I wasn't able at that time to say to see that she was projecting. You know, and that this wasn't about me. This was about her. But I believed her. That was the problem. I believed her, and um, from that moment forward, I stopped. I was going to say stopped auditioning, stopped trying, stopped applying myself, but really I stopped living. I just went, in, went into my head and I chose to believe her. And then after that, any, any kind of negative message I got about myself, I believed, including, you know, somebody well-intentioned, you know, when I got an exciting call back saying, um, oh, what are you going to do with 30 pounds to be the lead, you know? And, and, and it's, it's not something I carry with me. This is just stuff that happened. And... Um, but it, it started having an, its effect on me, and I stopped living the life that I, I was dreaming of. So um, I disappeared in my life. And um, we, hear, we hear in these rooms that this is a deadly disease. It's deadly and progressive. And when I first came in, it was hard for me to understand what that meant because I'm like, well, let's not exaggerate. I'm not dying, you know. And I guess I could see how alcoholism is a deadly disease or drug addiction is a deadly disease. But I was not living, that's for sure. I was not living any kind of a life. My life revolved around eating, watching TV, Period. <laughs> I, was, I was scanning my brain to see if there was anything else. There really wasn't. Um, and that's not living. And so if you're, if you're not living, you're dying. And um, because this is progressive, there is no telling what would have happened next. The heart palpitations, yeah. Uh, the doctors tell me I had high cholesterol in my head. I'm like, oh, well, that's hereditary. That's not my fault. Uh, borderline high blood pressure. Uh, polycystic ovaries. Oh, you can get rid of that if you lose a little weight. Oh, well, what do they know? Okay, I'll try a new diet. And so um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, I, I moved to New York after college, and um, that was the one dream I had from a, from a young age. I wanted to live in New York. A lot of people take it a step further and say they want to live in New York and be an actor on Broadway or whatever. I just wanted to live in New York. That was as much as I could admit to myself. And, um, and so I did. And it was life-changing, life-affirming. I was building a life for myself, surrounded by creative people. But I still was not doing anything. I was just, I was like living vicariously through other people. Oh, my God, you have this exciting audition, performance, you know, whatever it was. Oh, that's awesome. I'll do that someday. And I, I didn't know what was keeping me from doing the things that, in my heart of hearts, I knew my higher power wanted me to do. I somehow knew that, you know, from a young age, that my higher power had, you know, big plans or that I, if, if I 
could only dot, 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 then I could dot, dot, dot. And I could never figure out what that was. So, um, I, uh, I lived in New York for 15 years, and some of that time was um, I got into yoga, and I, I had some reprieve from my disease during that time because I felt like I had a, a mind-body connection. Um, but it was all just a Band-Aid on a really deep, festering wound that was um, inside and expanding and, and taking over my life from the inside out. Um, I would have uh, low blood sugar attacks. And I'm sure most people have had these. But um, I realized recently, I was listening to, I think, an AA tape, and they were talking about a, a tape, you know, like, <laughs> I say tape, it's just funny. Like, no, it's a podcast. But um, I was listening to an AA podcast, and they, 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 somebody said, um, somebody said, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. I'll come back to that. Um, anyway, I, I, uh, was living in New York, and then 9-11 happened. Um, I was an eyewitness on 9-11. Um, what I was doing, I was nannying, and they lived downtown, and I wasn't even supposed to be there that day. I showed up at work, and, and um, my, my, my boss said, what are you doing here? Um, you're not scheduled to work today. And, and I said, oh, well, I guess I'm confused. Let's see, it's 8.30. I guess I could. She said, why don't you stay for half an hour, and I'll pay you for an hour. And 20 minutes later, we heard planes flying overhead, and we you know, ran to the windows, and then we watched the planes fly into the building and watched everything after that. I saw people falling from the sky. I heard screaming on the street. Watched people walking out of a cloud of, um, of, of debris. And um, I, I tell you this not to impress you with, you know, what a horrible thing <laughs> happened to me. Um, but because it was one of the most significant times in my life because when I watched this happen, my first thought was there is no God because if there were a God, this would not happen. Um, I turned my back on God. I turned my back on my higher power. My higher power was not turning their back on me. It was, it was the other way around. I'm able to see that now. But at the time, I really could not believe that um, a loving higher power would let something like this happen. And I really bottomed out. I, um, it, was, it was daily binging. And um, for anybody that was in New York at that time, and it's probably like this a lot of places, um, we just sat in front of the news. 24-hour news cycle, and because it's what I did, I just ate in front of the TV, and um, I did that for years, and I was with um, my now husband, uh, boyfriend at the time, and um, we both went into our respective diseases, and um, it was a a very dark time, Um, and for years... I really suffered from post-traumatic stress, and I had no idea that I was. Um, but it was so similar to my disease that, it, you know, to this day I can't really tell you where one ends and the other begins. Um, I discovered Buddhism in 2005, and I started practicing Buddhism, and it, I felt something opening up within me. Um, 
But because I was still in the throes of my disease, the way I was practicing Buddhism was as a perfectionist. And if you know anything about Buddhism, is the two don't go hand in hand. So my practice was not really practice, and it was perfection. And, and if I couldn't do it perfectly, I wouldn't do it at all. And so there were things changing for me. Um, there, there was some internal shifting going on. Um, and uh, my life was, was changing and moving forward. I got married, and... Um, you know, I um, I really did experience some shifting when that happened. But let me let me paint the picture of my wedding day for you. Um, it was a Buddhist ceremony, so it's surrounded by my spiritual practice. We we used our spiritual practice in the ceremony. But I was in tears in the room before walking down the aisle because I could not stand to look at myself in the mirror. I hated the way I looked. I hated the way my dress fit. I hated the fact that I picked out that dress. I was manically crying and hyperventilating, and um, I just wanted to get it over with. I just wanted to get it over with. I wanted to shut off, get down the aisle. I didn't want anybody to look at me. I just wanted it to be over with. And um, ladies, I doubt that's how you want to feel on your wedding day. But um, I was, it was dark. And to this day, I want to do over. Same guy, new dress, new day. Because I was in the depths of my disease. And um, it, it, was, it was a very painful day for me. And um, God, I wish I had, I had done that abstinent. But, um, you know, this happens when it's supposed to happen. Um, I started finding some, uh, some I, I threw myself into some creative work, which was great, um, but I was a monster, <laughs> just to be honest with you. I was so, my, my character defects are such that I want to control what people think of me, and I want to control my environment. And um, so this, the type, I was doing improv, and I was walking on stage with a group of people writing the show in my head, and then literally, I mean, you turn to page 60 of the big book, and it talks about, you know, trying to be the actor and the director and the producer and running the show. That was me in an improv setting. In my head, I had written the show, and I was just trying to orchestrate everybody else on stage so that this show would go the way I wanted it to go, and it would have this nice, happy ending. And um, I couldn't understand why no one liked me. I couldn't understand why I didn't have any friends in this community. Um, and, and why I wasn't building the foundation of a really exciting career. Um, and the truth was, I was a monster. And, um, you know, I had one friend at the time. And she uh, she's an AA. And I really do believe the only reason she, uh, she was my friend is because um, she saw herself in me. You know, she saw my character defects and she knew... She was able to recognize them and say, oh, shit, this girl's got, excuse my language, this girl's got um, this disease, and so I understand her. And um, she loved me. She loved me when I could not love myself. And um, and then stuff just started happening. I fell on a salsa jar and busted my knee open but didn't go to the doctor, and then I was complaining all the time and whining, and my disease had reached this fever pitch, and, and it was like this uh, this high-pitched scream in the back of my head that was always going on and I was trying to shove the food into my face to, to silence it but it wasn't working anymore and then she went on vacation my therapist went on vacation my acupuncturist went on vacation and I had nobody <laughs> I had no one and this is where you know self-knowledge avails us nothing nothing you know your friends that know you 
you know, when they're not there, you know, your therapist who, who knows you that you've had the courage to open up to, when they're not there, when your acupuncturist who knows your body better than you do, when they're not there, what do you have left? I had nothing. And so I had this binge on a Saturday night in August. Thank you. And um, I, um, I found my way to a park in, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and sat outside the stone house, watched someone put a sign out, and, um, and waited to see if anybody went in, and then uh, found my way into the room. And the next day was my first day of abstinence. And um, I did, um, I know that not everybody comes into these rooms and gets abstinent right away. Um, I was desperate and out of, out of ideas, and I really hope that, um, that if you're not there yet, um, that you will eventually realize you're out of ideas and, that, um, and, and let, let the people in this room and this program help you. And when I started, I did 30 meetings in 30 days um, because I didn't know how to eat anymore. I didn't know what to do for lunch. I mean, I was making calls desperately. I'm on my lunch break wandering around because I don't know where to go, what to get, what to do. I was that desperate. So I did 30 meetings in 30 days. And in those meetings, I heard um, the promises. And I won't take the time to read them to you um, right now, but I hope you will look them up because the promises became my beacon. They became my light. They became my higher power. Um, I believed that that if, if I could believe that these promises could could come true for me, that um, that I would stick around. And and what I've come to believe is that um, the promises are the beacon. I work the steps, and the handrails are the traditions and the tools. And I can't let go of the handrails. They 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 keep me balanced. They keep me moving um, safely and steadily up those steps. But I got to climb the steps. I have to work the steps. Um, I'm working step nine right now, and um, and it's it's work. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to be working the ninth step because I know I know what's on the other side. And the reason I know is because of the big book. I, I, there are promises in this book, and I want those for myself. I want those in my life, and so I have to do the work. I have to do the work. Um, and I, I also know that I can get through anything abstinent. And, and I will just share a couple examples of that. Um, my husband and I uh, found ourselves in New York with Hurricane Irene coming, and we were in the zone that had to evacuate. And we're like, okay, let's go to Vermont. We, we always go to Vermont. It's a safe place. We'll go stay in a B&B. Well, we happened to go to the town in Vermont where Hurricane Irene hit the hardest. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. This entire town was washed away to nothing. While we were there, um, there was this horrible, perilous journey in the car trying to get out of town. didn't work. We were almost washed away. We ended up sitting in the high school um, at the Red Cross evacuation site and um, watched people lose everything, everything. Um, when we walked back through the town when the waters receded, um, it was like walking through, you know, a, a bombed out town and everything was gone. Um, the only thing I had, the reason we were, <laughs> were not sitting in our cozy B&B is because we'd gone to the store that morning to stock up on provisions. So the only thing I had with me was my abstinent food. I was in a flood and I was taken care of. My higher power was like, you know what? Uh, there's just going to be this flood, and they're only going to have ice cream to offer you and Gatorade. So run to the store real quick, just so you'll have your, you know, gluten-free crackers and and chicken. 
Um, I also just moved across the country, and um, I did that just under two years of abstinence. And um, I did a road trip with my husband in a car for 10 days. Um, that was incredible. We, we really only had, I think, one fight the whole time, which is a miracle. Um, but I also had my abstinent food. You know, I was able to, you know, I'm sorry, but my, my food plan is um, high maintenance. I eat gluten-free and no sugar. When you're driving through Kansas, you do not have a lot of options. <laughs> so, Kansas, I love you and nothing against you because I, I was still taken care of. There were plenty of subway stations. Um, subway stations. New Yorker, no, Subway restaurants, um, that where I was able to bring in my gluten-free bread and exchange their stuff, you know, with my stuff. And um, I, I moved across the country abstinently, and I believed that in my, my heart of hearts I can get through anything abstinently if I am um, working this program. Um, and I, I want to say, I want to share one last thing um, that I, I heard an old-timer say, um, and that is that the the only thing keeping me from a higher power, from um, God, however it is you define God, when I came in, the word God freaked me out. I couldn't handle it. It made my skin crawl. So if you have problems with that word, just replace it. I don't care what you use, cat, Larry, ocean, what, whatever whatever it is, it does not matter. Um, but um, I... I believe that there's a line in the sand and I'm on one side and on the other side is everything good and is my higher power and it's you, my fellows, and it is life. And that line is my ego. That line is my willingness and that line is my food. And the only way I can enjoy the benefits of a life of recovery, of good, of everything that you have to offer me, of the love of my fellow, my fellows in the room and my fellow human beings, is if I let go of my will and I approach everything with willingness and openness and humility because that is how we are to be of service in this lifetime. And I believe we are all here to be of service to each other. Not just in these rooms, but in this world. And the only way I can be of service is if I am abstinent, and that I am. And the only way I can keep my abstinence is by working this program. And um, with that, I'm going to wrap up. And if there are any minutes left, I would love to take some questions if you have. Uh, my 11th step, I'm still working the 9th step, um, but my, the 10th and 11th and 12th steps, as I understand them, are daily practices. So um, I will tell you how I practice spiritually on a daily basis. Um, I do what I was told, and that is getting on my knees. I, I pray. That's not a comfortable. I'm sorry. I'll repeat the question. How do I um, practice the 10th, 11th, and 12th steps? Um, yeah, I, I get on my knees, and um, I recite a handful of prayers that were given to me, the set-aside prayer. Um, please help me set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, these steps, and especially you for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my disease, these steps, and especially you. Also, um, the reveal prayer. Uh, as I reveal myself to you, please reveal yourself to me. As I begin to seek the truth, please shine a light so that I might see the way. Um, I read the steps. I say the serenity prayer. Um, I do a lot of writing. I believe that writing is prayer. I believe that prayer exists in 
you know, in infinite ways. Prayer can be answering a call when a fellow is, is calling. Prayer can be calling a newcomer. Prayer can be writing. Um, but I, I do try to get on my knees every day, and I do that imperfectly. I also make my bed. And, I, you know, this sounds silly, but um, someone told me that, you know, messy bed, messy head. And um, so I feel like I've, I've got to start the day, you know, with a, with a, a clear head. The question is, how do I work my marriage in the 12 steps? Um, I, uh, you know, I learned to let go. The first three steps um, are, are about letting go. And um, I learned how to apologize, first of all. I, and I think that if, 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 if you're married or in a relationship, um, I think that's the first step towards improving it, what, however it is today. I learned how to apologize and take responsibility from my side of the street. And then I learned how to say, that is none of my business. Um, I, learned, I had to learn what was my business and what, what wasn't my business. And, um, and whenever there's something going on, I have to stop and take stock and say, okay, what's my next loving action? And um, you better believe we have had some Sid and Nancy fights, you know, while I have been in recovery. But, um, but that's, you know, that's part of recovery is learning how to apologize afterwards and how to, um, and, and how to be loving. And um, luckily I have a husband who is dedicated to growing as well. And, and so we're able to come together in a loving way. Thank you, everyone.